Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking budget day, student complaints in the pandemic, pensions, and we have the latest dispatches for the culture wars. It's all coming up. But as, as Debbie pointed out, a lot of these things are very subjective and therefore that, that means that individuals will have individual complaints that are very specific to their circumstances. You know, what a course or course leader may or may not have done in response to this that may or may not be deemed efficient, that may or may not have um, meant an individual has taken the time to go down the route of the ombudsman. Um, and, and, and so I, I suppose, you know, the, the, the long tail question is... More- Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, recording from our cutting-edge recording studio, or spare room as we call it around here. And joining me to unpack the red box of policy goodies this week are two fabulous guests. In Nottingham, we have Alex Favier, Director of Global and Political Affairs at the University of Nottingham. Alex, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, um, I think um, it's mostly been... Um, dinosaur toy related as my uh, uh, four month old daughter um, has uh, discovered um, the, the kind of uh, the, the joy of um, objects to play with um, and that has occupied her for at least half an hour before she's realised um, that she should be upset about something else so that's definitely my highlight <laughs> and from Team Wonky it's Debbie McVitie Wonky's editor Debbie your highlight of the week uh, oh I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have two bites of the sherry uh, one is our admissions event on Tuesday which was just fantastic um, and loads of really rich and interesting debate and I think um, and, and, and I think ch- changed my thinking about, about the, the likelihood of, uh, of, of us ever moving to a PQA model uh, but you know more on that on the site in due course I'm sure um, the other one is when I, I pressed uh, by on a some, some delicious treats from Betty's in Yorkshire because do you know what life is really sad right now and everyone needs treats so biscuits are coming to our house and we start the week in Westminster where not only we've had a budget of course but a glimpse at the future funding agency ARIA uh, and a uh, uh, lots of other bits and bobs. Alex, uh, talk us through it. Okay, uh, Mark. I mean, essentially, um, this is a, a, a status quo budget from the perspective of higher education um, in large degree. We, we haven't found the kind of surprise changes or rabbits in hats, as I believe they're technically called, um, that we've seen elsewhere. Um, but in terms of the kind of main things um, for the sector... Um, the uh, positive visa changes to the global talent route and there's an excellent blog on this uh, on wonky um there is a freeze on the tuition fee cap which has been buried in the red box red book um and uh yeah again you know control f and search for universities is always a a time-honored approach to analyzing any budget um the aria funding announcement um which we'll get onto in a second uh, which was very heavily pre-briefed in recent weeks which is quite interesting um but actually in terms of the economic development piece um universities across the the uh, the country will be looking at this um not least because we are of course all uh, heavily involved in all elements of leveling up and economic growth now um, and so new help to grow uh, funds, a future fund, breakthroughs. Um, some of us are involved in free ports as well. Um, 
So lots there in the margins, um, but nothing too substantial for the sector in this particular budget, mm. I don't think. But the I guess, Debbie, it's the, it's the meta-narrative, isn't it, about I guess where we're heading over the next three years or so? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are essentially two ways to read, you know, big, big statements like this one. And um, the traditional wonky way is to kind of, I guess, to do that control F thing and, and look look for, you know, where it says universities and sort of say, what, what what's in here for universities? But I think it would be, I think the relative absence of universities from specific funding commitments and policy announcements shouldn't be taken as a lack of endorsement of, univer- of the vital role of universities in delivering, helping to deliver on the government's policy agenda um, and I think you know reading the political wins I think it is I, I sort of I would commend the uh, not 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 the red book actually but the plan for growth the build back better plan that the government published alongside the budget which sets out in reasonable amount of detail what the big long-term plan to get the you know essentially get the, you know get Britain back, back moving and also get the government uh, elected at, at the next election and that is grounded in things that are absolutely central to what universities do place uh, leveling up net zero carbon emissions innovation skills um and, and 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 infrastructure and these are and, and you know and, and all through that book what you see is you know we have world leading universities delivering cutting edge science um and we want to be a science superpower we want to be global britain we have you know internationally impactful universities we have places we have universities in our places and they are delivering on these things so there's not there's not a sense here i think that universities are, are, are perceived as marginal in fact if anything i think they're, they're perceived as very much central to the government's long-term agenda um and i think there's perhaps an opportunity here i mean lots of lots of lots of decisions will be deferred to the spending review in the autumn and of course universities are in england particularly staring down the barrel of potential funding cuts cuts to fees um and you know there's there's a kind of moment here to uh redouble efforts to convince treasury that uh, if the government wants to deliver on on its on its big reset it absolutely needs to back universities Hmm. I think that the, um, the, the, as you say, the big control F exercise is going to happen in the autumn with the comprehensive spending review, where we're promised a final wrap up of this question of of fees and auger and, and all the rest. But you know, I guess we'll we'll believe it when we see it. It's been it's been promised before. I think uh, part of part of the other interest I think from this week has been the the, the economic forecast from the OBR, hasn't it? Because what we see is uh, definitely a, a kind of little post COVID boost, but then perhaps several years of quite anemic growth. And that that does have real real world effects on on kind of every part of the economy. I mean, one of them is is also uh, the, the associated return on on student loans. The OBR predicting uh, as a result of of all that, the the RAB charge is going to rise um, in uh, uh, from fifty three point two to fifty sorry fifty three point two to fifty three point six, which is a substantial amount when we when we look at the you know just the kind of tens of billions um, that that entails. So I guess my my question is. Um, to the two of you is um, is there a, is there a danger that we're heading into you know, difficult economic territory? That's going to mean less less graduates, fewer graduates paying paying back their student loans, which is going to put further pressure on the on the funding system. Could we end up on the other side of this parliament with a much bigger look at the question of of fees and funding and how all these kind of bits bits link together? I don't think so. On the basis that that the government sort of approach to the rub charges, if it doesn't. If we don't look at it too closely, does it really exist? And um, I, I would suspect that that will continue. I mean, not least if we if we see a change in in government. Um, I suspect that this is one of those things, um, a bit like um, uh, social care reform, that will just keep on getting kicked down, or skills um, that will keep on getting kicked down the political agenda. Um, 
with reviews and reviews of reviews and then reviews of reviews of reviews. Um, I think the wider kind of economic malaise is going to have an impact on on universities for sure, um, but mostly because of the impact on graduates and the availability of jobs um, and the value of degree agenda that the government is is very closely linking to um, employability and earnings. Um, I think that also universities' ability to access easy capital for either improvement or expansion plans. You know, we are all looking at what does a future campus um, uh, look like at the moment, and and some of that is going to require investment. Certainly, you know, universities have spent a, a substantial amount making co- campuses COVID secure and facilities, um, uh, you know, um, able to be used during the pandemic. And I suspect that whatever happens um, over the next year and a half will require that investment. I, I suspect that that wider economic malaise may impact our ability to do that, or certainly some institutions' ability to do that. Mm. And, and Debbie, this this also links to the kind of what looks like a bit of a moving away from the industrial strategy or the, or the rhetoric around industrial strategy. We just learned today, actually, that the government's disbanding the Industrial Strategy Council, which had lots of lots of big names and was seen as a bit of a focal point for some of this work. I mean, what what comes in its place if if we if we, if industrial strategy is being put aside? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think it's more that the 2017 version of the industrial strategy is being put aside. And I think, and I think, you know, certain probably bits of thinking around that um, relating to kind of investment in particular challenges and sectors. But actually, I mean, again, in the plan for growth, there's, there's quite a lot there about things like investment in life sciences, um, you know, supercomputing, you know, the, there, you know, there, there is attention to particular bits of industry. But I suppose um, this government uh, is perhaps a bit more uh, wide ranging in its thinking around uh, place. So I think, you know, the, the lens that it's bringing to bear are things like place and, uh, you know, green energy and, uh, you know, innovation generally, you know, the, you know, is looking at it from a kind of, you know, sort of a whole infrastructure perspective rather than perhaps specific industries as being the kind of focal point. So I suppose rather than saying this is the end of industrial strategy per se, it's sort of saying this is an industrial strategy or, or you know, aligned to economic strategy with, with a slightly different lens and focus. So in some ways, this, this is about um, killing off what we you know what what feels like a sort of redundant piece of policy um although it's uh, i suppose a bit frustrating for anyone who hasn't has invested in kind of doing things around that particular industrial strategy but i think there's, there's also still a lot of carryover you know there's still that focus on skills and apprenticeships higher technical all the things that um you know were sort of known to be underpinning for the for the earlier version of the industrial strategy have, pop, have popped up again in, in skills for jobs and all the and 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 the kind of sense that you know that 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 is an area for investment. So I think it's an evolution rather than a rather than a, a total a total U-turn on that. And on research and science, I guess the big glitzy thing of the, of this week and and really this this month is the is Aria, the the new uh, UK DARPA, uh, the the big new science blue sky science agency. Um, it's awfully interesting. I mean, Dominic Cummings was pushing this, and, and a lot of people thought that it might um, it, it it might fall away after his departure of Number Ten. But they are they are going ahead with it, and it's it's garnered some interesting headlines over the last couple of weeks because of the secrecy surrounding it. It's not going to be subject to FOI or normal procurement rules. It can't be abolished once this bill's been passed for ten years or something like that. So it's, it's, they're not going to be able to, to chop and change it. Um, I mean, Alex, do you, do you see any opportunities here for universities? I mean, I do wonder where it's going to be based. Maybe it's going to be sort of you know in the northeast between sort of. Uh in a small town outside of Durham, um, given the association with, uh, with, with, with its kind of, um, its founder in many ways. I, 
I, I mean, there's a huge amount of opportunities this, in this. And uh, I mean, it was interesting when it was being floated, some universities were sort of having a debate about whether they'd want it to be located near them, because um, this is exactly the kind of big thing that would potentially suck the oxygen out of um, place-based investments in research and innovation. But again, the co-location principle does also apply, or does it, if we are in a kind of post-location-based pandemic when we're thinking about um, how we interact with, with, with partners. I, I think time will tell. Um, how it interacts with UKRI is going to be fascinating and the, the, the people that run this because you know if you don't have a lot of kind of governance around a structure like this um, then you're going to sort of uh, imagine that agency i individuals are going to be much greater um, in terms of how this actually works in practice so the appointments to its um, senior positions and boards will be extremely interesting um, and, and those relationships if we if we look at the OFS appointments um, I, I would be uh, surprised if there wasn't a similar approach to a kind of semi-political appointment to head this up um but yeah um i I do think it's going to be something quite interesting i suspect it'll get quite a lot of international attention as well um and so how this body interacts with the international dimension of research and innovation uh, will be interesting to watch i think i think i think that's a really big risk actually is that you know the you know, the success of an agency like this, I think, depends on it being uh, free to do radical things and to be independent from government and not to kind of um, be feel in any way obliged to follow the whims of ministers. And of course, I mean, that that is broadly the case at UKRI. Um, and if if we were to see a, a, a kind of quasi political appointment, I think it would really, uh, you know, tie the hands of the agency, you know, from the get go. And we saw already this, um, you know, some some of the kind of uh, measures that the are being put in place in, in in theory to kind of liberate this agency from from red tape and all the rest of it have have really hit some buttons uh around worrying about cronyism and stuff and i think in some ways it's, this is about timing because of course it's, we're coming off the back of all the ppe contracts and so cronyism is a bit of a um is a bit of a sort of hot button topic and actually that might that that charge might not stick in other you know in other times had this agency been you know been been published at a different time. Um, so I think there's a real need to appoint people who are led by science and who are um, actually really good communicators. Because one of the reasons why we have all these rules and uh, procurement rules uh, and, and and FOI and all the rest of it is is to try and uh, mitigate the tendency of organisations toward like this, you know, funding distribution organisations towards secrecy and to kind of bake in accountability. Actually, you appoint really good people, you can achieve a level of accountability and public confidence without having to have all these rules. So I think if um, this, a smart a smart appointment will be kind of as, as as far away from politics as possible, as close to the science as possible, and very much, you know, ready ready to talk to people about what's going on and to say, yeah, this didn't work, we're trying something else, you know, let's go for it. Yeah, I mean, the, the signs don't build well though. I was just looking at the detail of the uh, of, of the published bill. I mean, good news is that the government's chief scientific advisor is on the on the board, so that's that's Patrick Valance. Everyone everyone likes to respect him, but um, it's also it's a small board, nine rather than the twelve to fifteen of of UKRI. Um, the chair is appointed by the secretary of state, but the secretary of state also gets to appoint the CEO and chief financial officer. Um, and the chair gets then to appoint everyone else. So it, 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 it's it's kind of ripe for cronyism, unfortunately. If I was putting a bet on who might be involved in this, uh, I do wonder whether Kate Bingham might be a decent shout for a tenor uh, on, 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 on somebody that, that might head this up on the basis that they're very much looking at that kind of model of, of vaccines, you know, so, certainly compared to test and trace, you've got these two kind of one went well and one went um, not so well in terms of um, this kind of, of 
of, of entity. But thinking about other entities in the UK that, that we might want to look at um, for how this works and how this works in practice, NHSX is a really good example of an organisation that sort of sits on the margins, um, has a lot of kind of former special advisors in and around the leadership there, and does things with not a huge amount of oversight. Um, and I, I do think that, that there'll be bits of that um, within the kind of operating things. But, uh, you know, there is opportunity within this. And, and obviously, the, you know, the vaccine task force um, uh, has, has worked ex- extraordinarily well for the UK. And so if they can capture that spirit of um, a mix of entrepreneurialism um, without the kind of um, issues that Tess and Trace run into in terms of you know basic competence. Um, I do think that this might not be a complete disaster. Um, but yeah, time, <laughs> although, time, although, time, although, will I mean, time will tell. 800 million pounds there is, is nothing compared to, to any of these things you, you mentioned. I mean, I mean, Look, I, I think I think Debbie's right. I think people are going to want to see results and you know exciting breakthroughs, even if we don't learn about them for thirty years. Um, but eight hundred million pounds is not a lot of money to spend on you know reinventing you know jet propulsion and uh, nuclear fission and and you know whatever else, discovering aliens and you know using their technology or whatever it is they're going to do. Whenever we may never know. Actually, you know, may, I don't even I don't even know if the thirty year rule will will apply. Well, it's, it's a sort of interesting test case as well for the idea that by reducing regulation, you inspire innovation. And I think, you know, it, it's a bit of a sort of central tenet of conservative thinking, isn't it? That, you know, but that re- regulation kind of constrains people. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there is a strong case for, for that for that to be true. Um, but but it will be very interesting to see, you know, the regu- regulation also, you know, creates accountability. So, it will it will be interesting to see what the agency does with this with this lack of regulation and you know what, what is what is actually visible you know when 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 there's no obligation to produce these kind of turgid annual reports and all the rest of it uh, you can read more about aria uh, and the budget and everything else on the site right let's see who's been blogging for us this week i'm nikki king associate dean for education in engineering math and physical science at the university of exeter this week, I've asked whether A-levels really are the right preparation for study at university, or whether we should unshackle ourselves from traditional prerequisites and look for more skills and motivations required for study at university, rather than our perhaps old-fashioned view of core knowledge requirements. Research looking at predictive success in higher education gives a confusing picture, but at Exeter we've done the opposite and shown that you can be successful in degree-level science without having studied the prerequisite subject at A-level. This therefore raises the question of why we require certain pre-university core knowledge for many subjects. I argue that by being innovative in our first-year curriculum structure and the way we support students in transition, we could widen access to many subjects and mitigate the sometimes poor decisions taken post-16 and the narrow choice of subjects studied. Whilst reform of post-16 qualifications may be desirable, there are things that we can do in universities to mitigate the unintended consequences of the system we have. Hi, my name is Maisha Islam. I'm the Chief Agent Research and Projects Officer from the University of Winchester, and I know that's a hell of a long job title. Um, but I recently wrote a blog for Wonky titled "Bain Doesn't Help Us Understand Our Students," which essentially adds to the growing debate within the higher education sector related to our over-reliance on the term "Bain" as an acronym, where I think we have a weird love-hate relationship for it. But the blog really highlights what I've called um, the sort of under knowledge A and B, where the experiences of our Asian students have been largely neglected, despite their consistently low levels of satisfaction and things like NSS and the academic experience survey. Um, however, it does really do a shout out to a report I released earlier this year from the University of Winchester, which collates the experiences of our Asian students in order to inform our understanding, understanding of kind of why we were seeing um, 
large degree of warning gaps. But I think one of the most interesting and kind of light bulb moments for me personally was, um, you know, where I come from an Asian background, was this um, invisible and sort of unlabeled care of similar Asian students might be, where the love and care and respect that they have for their family unit is a really major importance that may be leading to sort of dual roles um, being played out where they're not really seeking appropriate support. So I think the main takeaway from the blog is, well, we have, you know, our BME degree awarding gaps that represent one of uh, higher education systemic inequalities. Actually, by disaggregating this term and focusing on our students as individuals could really ensure effective redressal of these issues. So this week, USS has published the uh, an update about its uh, valuation. And um, is this a moment for peace to break out, Debbie? <laughs> I think chance would be a fine thing. Um and as as ever this is this is really complicated stuff. Um uh but the kind of headlines I suppose are really quite startling. So USS has uh, begun the process of conducting the 2020 valuation. So the USS scheme has has to has to conduct a valuation um every for every, every so often. Uh, to assess the scale of the scheme's deficit, uh, the payments that will be needed to maintain benefits in the future, uh, and all the rest of it. So USS has concluded that the deficit of the entire scheme has increased to between 14 and 16 billion pounds, which is up from three and a half billion in the 2018 valuation. And, and we know just how contentious that number was. So the fact that it's, uh, you know, close to quadrupling is is really quite shocking um and by far the biggest driver for this uh, about 12 billion worth of, of that estimate is is the the general economic out, outlook so the project, projected returns on investment are much lower than they were in 2018 and this is all to do with gilt yields which which is something that people who know about economics know about um but the the bottom line is is that the result if 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 this if this valuation pro- progresses USS is saying that the contributions will need to increase and, and of course employers contribute part and, and scheme members contribute part to somewhere between 42 to 56 percent of payroll which is absolutely astronomical uh, contributions are currently at 30.7 percent which is pretty high you know in the first place um, and the only reason they're there is is because USS agreed to defer the planned rise coming off the 2018 valuation which 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 it was scheduled to rise to 34.7 percent um uh, this year so you know what even the most optimistic scenario has contributions rising really sharply and of course UCU has come back and said you know this 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 is far too pessimistic um and and the US USS has uh, ignored some of the key key recommendations of the joint expert panel which was convened to try and and, and manage the uh, the, out, the you know the sort of the failure to achieve an outcome of of the 2017 and 2018 valuations um and interestingly UK has also suggested that USS needs to justify these high rates um and clearly you know UK is, is not not planning to make the mistake of, of, of fighting USS battles uh, again. But I think, I mean, I think the thing to remember here is that, you know, we're, we're all set for another enormous showdown and it's going to be really, really challenging and, and, and absolutely bloody. Um, there will, you know, there will almost certainly be industrial action. Um, employers will be in a really, really challenging position. Scheme members will be, um, you know, really kind of wanting to know what's going on. Um, and it's all going to be really, really difficult. Uh, but I think a key point here really is, is you know, uh, Nick Hillman got into uh, wrote, wrote a number of blogs a couple of weeks ago and got got into some quite heated debates on Twitter as as a result. Um, and the thing he kept saying, which I think is right, is is that the you know the argument internal to the sector is actually not really the main show. The question is is about the pensions regulator and what the pensions regulator will tolerate. Um, so it's, it really is there's a there's a lot of work to be done here to convince the pensions regulator that. Uh, 
that USS can car- carry deficits on that scale. And and if the pensions regulator will, will not be convinced of that, then all, all this debate about you know who's optimistic and who's pessimistic is is, is pretty irrelevant, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alex, you, you're in a you're in a USS university. Uh, I'm sure you're looking at those proposed rises, and I mean, it's 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 devastating, isn't it? Yeah, and and uh, on an individual basis, I I, I just I'd, I'm not sure how I can afford nappies with that kind of personal rise as well. It's going to be uh, it's, it is quite eye watering. I mean, look, a bit of me, and this is may, maybe naive, is sort of wondering whether the slightly crazy rates uh, being proposed are are just a way of of making um, you know bringing together UCE and Universities UK. So maybe you know, uh, Alistair and Joe will, will together march down um, to the uh, to to the I'd trustees' office, holding hands and saying it's all right we'll we'll agree on which parts of the the JEP um recommendations um uh, we want to to collectively do um I, I just really don't want this to turn into yet another kind of culture war on on campus in terms of our internal um uh, narrative about this i think narrative is the danger here it is so complicated it is so fiddly um there are so many moving parts and you know even though this is something that that is you know, normally something I, I I have to pay attention to um, with my job, even I will try and dial out of pension detail um, when when I, when I can. So um, how that appears to to, to most normal um, people, uh, uh, and I wouldn't classify myself as one of those in <laughs> universities, uh, let alone students and everything else, um, is is another matter, um, and and that's where it's quite dangerous because a narrative about you know universities pushing a particular agenda, the regulator pushing a particular agenda, um, become um, toxic. So I, I'm, my hope is that there can be a kind of joint approach to this um, between um, UCA UK and UCU, but it it, it isn't feasible for anybody uh and, and so i'm hoping that that initial kind of reaction of everyone that this is this is something that isn't feasible and will damage the scheme um far beyond the actual um the actual kind of real strength of it whatever that may be um is 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 is, is, is a good start i think and that's me taking reaching for the pollyanna um <laughs> take on this mm. I think, I mean, Debbie, is the, um, th- it seems like there's, there's, there's lots of different kind of arguments going on at the same time. And, and there's, there are people within UCU who, um, I, th- I guess, looking at it from the outside, I think they think they can make some progress here by arguing on the detail of how these valuations are conducted and, o- and other things, which are obviously fiendishly complicated and require you to hire actuaries and, uh, uh, and all the rest. But isn't, isn't it seems to me that that's actually not where the the real battle is there's a there's a kind of much wider industrial dispute here and a a kind of much bigger problem with um uss i mean i you know i have some sympathy with the ucu line that says well the you know the chief executive of ucu is paid too much when the scheme is facing such a such a large deficit he's on you know he's on half a million pounds or something uss not ucu but yes sorry uss yes i think i think well I mean, there's a sort of in normal times argument, isn't there, which says that, you know, every year the deficit creeps up and every year, you know, and the kind of, and and what's supposed to happen is, is that employers try and keep the contributions down and members try and keep them up and and, and you you arrive at a, you arrive at a compromise and nobody's really happy, but, you know, everyone sort of soldiers on and, and that's sort of how it's always been. And, when you're looking at, but when you're looking at kind of deficits and contributions on this scale, it's actually you know the whole the whole system of, and this and this is why I think rather than rather than kind of going back to that 
argument of saying, oh, well, you know, these, these tight-fisted employers won't, won't pay out to preserve our pensions. And, um, and then employers saying, oh, well, you know, these, uh, you know, these people are living in cloud cuckoo land and what, you know, they get very generous pension benefits and, you know, you know, that kind of, that kind of classic back and forth that is, is, you know, is, is in, I guess, in normal times, somewhat performative. Um, it just it just sort of stops being meaningful because you're just thinking, but the you know, the scale of the problem is, is is too enormous for 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 that to for that for that to make sense. And so I suppose you do have to go back to the kind of technical technical points and say is this, is this, is this is the problem really that bad? But even if you know, and this is about even with relatively optimistic projections, you're still talking about some quite serious issues. Um, and so it, it you know it, it takes leadership of a different sort. I think you know not just rallying the troops, but but really kind of as Alex says, sort of thinking about well, how, what common ground can we find here? Because actually this is all of our futures to some extent. So we've got to figure out a way through this that doesn't, that doesn't just involve kind of, uh, you know, re- re- rehearsing the old, the old arguments. On Tuesday the 16th of March, Wonky, together with our partners Handshake, will host a Wonky at Home event. Nice work if you can get it. Diversity, social capital and graduate level employment. The reality is that privilege still pays, and social background continues to play a role in access to professional opportunities in the UK. Now, with the Westminster government's focus on graduate-level employment, there's an opportunity to refocus attention on what universities, working with employers, can do to break down the barriers to diversity in the graduate labour market. At the event, we'll look at student expectations for their future employment, and we'll hear from expert speakers, including Anne-Marie Amaphidon, Chief Executive of STEMETS and powerful voice for diversity. So head to wonky.com forward slash events to find out more and book your ticket now. Okay, so the Office for the Independent Adjudicator has published a new set of case summaries for student complaints during COVID-19. Alex, what jumped out at you? Um, Thanks, Mark. Um, So uh, as ever, uh, Jim has provided a helpful summary on the site and and you can always sort of tell um, the level of cynicism with which he's approaching things by his choice of um, stock image, uh, which is a car (laughs) crash. Um, So uh, the three case studies that that have been sort of highlighted are um, the the, the kind of the thing that many universities are uh, are wrestling with at the moment, which is the the accommodation refund. And I know um, certainly uh, uh, students are pretty exercised around that. Um, but also some of the kind of restrictions in terms of particular access to facilities like laboratories um, and and also going back into the heady days of 2019. Um, I never thought I'd look forward to those those days. Um, the impact of industrial action in terms of disruption on studies. Um, so providing these examples... Um, it's both helpful and unhelpful, I suspect, um, and universities uh, will um, both uh, be um, mindful of these complaints uh, multiplying, um, as they have a tendency to do, um, but at least uh, they have provided at least a bit of guidance, um, because uh, as, as Jim points out, the university's minister is very clear in terms of repeatedly um, saying in her quote-unquote message for students um, on Twitter uh, that they can actually complain via the OIA if they feel the quality of their education is not there. Yes, this is a problem, isn't it, Debbie? Because there's lots of mixed signals coming out of government about what students can complain about and where they can complain to. 
Well, I mean, it's, it, I suppose I wouldn't necessarily characterise it as mixed signals so much as kind of incorrect signals because... Yeah. Um, or yeah. outright, outright lies. Did we go that far? <laughs> I don't think we would go that far. I think, I, I mean, it, it, it is true, of course, that, that if students are unhappy with any aspect of their course, they are absolutely enabled to, to make a complaint. Should that complaint be not upheld in their internal institutional processes, they can, of course, go to the OIA. What I think is enormously underestimated is all the various things that might uh, preclude that complaint being taken seriously or, 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 or justified or, or responded to at an institutional level. So, of course, so things like academic judgment, for example, about what well, is this is, is one mode of uh, teaching delivery an adequate substitute for another one and so on. Um, and also just the, uh, the you know, the, the par imbalances, the, uh, you, know, the, you know, the barriers that exist to students going through that process, you know, it is, it is an awful you know, it is an awful lot to ask of a student to take, not only to take on their institution, to, you know, to shop, shop their lecturers, perhaps in some cases, um, and then, and then having not, you know, achieved redress through that process to then take it to, you know, what, what we know is a kind of a very friendly and lovely and easy to deal with ombudsman. But of course, from students' perspective, they've never heard of the OIA until this moment. And, you know, and then they have to kind of jump through a whole other set of hoops. And it's not like they don't have other things going on in their lives. So, I, you know, so, so I think what, what is definitely kind of sub reasonably subject to critique is the failure of various regulators and governments to actually set out what is reasonable for students to expect in, in, under pandemic conditions. Um, and to allow it all to be kind of retrospectively kind of worked through by the OIA as, as, as essentially kind of creating a sort of subversion of case law that the universities can then kind of have, have to sort of reverse engineer to try and figure out what, what they should have been delivering 18 months ago, uh, which, you know, none, none of that doesn't make sense as a system. Um, and also the sort of, I guess, quite sort of sanguine expectation that if, you know, if complaints aren't coming through, that, that means students are essentially happy. And that's not really a legitimate you know, claim to make. I mean, you mentioned kind of the, the sort of case law, or the, 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 you know, acting by, by precedent. I mean, looking at some of the examples, um, I guess it, it, it speaks to me that the, the OA not feeling like they have kind of a lot of reach into these, into these questions. So um, we mentioned, we've been talking about um, the, the dispute over USS, but you know, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the cases highlighted was about disruption because of the 2019 industrial action, as well as, as well as the pandemic. Um, and uh, the OA thought, well, yes, it was reasonable for students to complain about all that, but they just gave them two hundred pounds. So it doesn't seem to speak to me that they, 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 you know, they have the the real ability to suggest a lot of, uh, of of recompense in these type of things. Well, there is, there is. I think one interesting thing that Jim brought out is that uh, the OIA has got come down very firmly on the side of compensation. So that is, you know, money money out of universities' pockets rather than a kind of more nebulous concept of fee refunds. So which would be kind of, you know, in theory, you know, taking it off the <laughs> taking it off the, uh, the the amount of debt that students owe on graduation. So I think you know that that is that that is quite a concrete thing. Yeah, the the scale, the scale of the compensation involved is it's not always very significant. Significant, um, and I guess the OIA is just using its best judgment as to, as to what you, what the kind of level of, of 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 challenge and distress has been for the student, and try and kind of put put a number on that. And they've got a they've got an algorithm that cal that calculates that. You know, again, again, sort of, you know, that they've they've sort of evolved to, to try and kind of manage these really quite unprecedented situations that the sector finds itself in. But the other thing, of course, is is that there there's another example where the university was unable to deliver, or or the the, the mitigation that the university proposed. It, 
off the back of the failure to deliver practical aspects of the course, this was a lab-based course, um, the OIA was very clear that, that that wasn't acceptable, that the mitigation has to be both um, reasonable in terms of will it replace the thing that the thing that was not offered and also accessible in that the, you know, the student has to reasonably be able to, to do that um, as well. So, and, and, the, and that student, I think, got, got rather more in compensation. So there is, there's a clear sort of set variation between... Um, you know things things that are really quite tangible and things that are a bit less tangible and i think when you when you're getting into less tangible territory around teaching quality and, and that sort of thing it gets a bit more challenging to really put meaningful numbers on what students have lost out on mm. i mean should alex to you, the extent to which you're planning for and, and and believe next academic year is going to be more business as usual and and or, or to what extent we're going to be seeing kind of a long tail of these type of complaints through the next couple of years um i, th- I think we will and i think it's also the kind of the habit that individuals because i think the one thing to say is that these but as, as debbie pointed out a lot of these things are very subjective and therefore that that means that individuals will have individual complaints that are very specific to their circumstances you know what a course or course leader may or may not have done in response to this that may or may not be deemed efficient that may or may not have um, meant an individual has taken the time to go down the route of the ombuds um, and, and so I, I suppose you know the, the, the long tail question is more connected to whether students get into the habit and are aware of their ability as individuals to do this um, so you know that you might say that that all ties in with this kind of wider narrative as student as consumer and customer with rights etc and and so you, you might be looking at it I mean I, I would finally say that uh, business as usual in September I've been, I've, I've been trying to be as, as pessimistic as I possibly can. Um, so when, when universities can hold events again, that's when I, I would classify this as, uh, as business as usual. And I think autumn is going to be pushing it, um, if I'm honest. Um, but fingers crossed. And now we catch up with Mike Radcliffe for a Hidden History. In the 17th century, the big motif is religious um, intolerance. So... The first university, the first English university, founded um, after um, Oxford and Cambridge, and that really gets going, is in Ash. It, I'm stumbling here. It's in Massachusetts. So a group of English people are having uh, a terrible time with religious oppression. So they sail uh, across the Atlantic, which is not a pleasant experience, and they set up Harvard. Um, they attract some money uh, from uh, Mr. Harvard. He gives them the cash. They set up a college where they can be free. They don't want to send their sons back across the Atlantic uh, to Oxford and Cambridge where they will get, A, a poor uh, religious experience because they won't get the right kind of religious uh, teaching. They're also a bit nervous about sending them across the Atlantic because this is a very dangerous thing to do. So they set up their own college. Um, so you start with a sense of people having their own religious uh, experience. The English Civil War is full of examples of what happens to English universities. Obviously, in both cases, armies camp out in those cities, so that becomes very problematic. As you go through, uh, fellows are excluded from each side. So the parliamentarians will come and chuck out all the uh, high church people. Uh, then after the uh, Civil War, the high church people get back and the, the Puritans are thrown out again. Uh, and we go back through these cycles. Um, it comes to a peak under James II because uh, he starts including Catholics into the Protestant universities. And there's a huge run. And there's a strong case for saying that... Um, his behaviour in trying to put uh, Catholics into Magdalen College, Oxford, is the tipping point that induces the rebellion against him and ends his reign. So student politics, or getting students into university, could be said. Uh, it's a bit te- uh, tenuous, but there's a sense of, well, hang on a second, we could, we, this could be a really big problem. So 
in terms of the religious conflict, you've got a whole setup of this is really complicated stuff. Oxford and Cambridge are the king's universities. Um, they are uh, become religious uh, in flavour, uh, and therefore getting the right people in there who are going to teach the young becomes very important. So you get various bits of what now seem to be absolutely extraordinary legislation that comes in that sets out who should be in these universities and students allowed. So the first one is the Act of Uniformity in 1662. So uh, for anyone who's keen on the Book of Common Prayer. This is this is where that comes from. But it says that any head, fellow, chaplain or tutors in any college hall or house of learning, every public professor and reader of either of the universities has got to sign the declaration and acknowledgement. So they've got to sign up to being a Church of England uh, person. Um, if they don't get a license from the bishop, um, they could suffer the fate of three months imprisonment. So, if you don't get the bishop's license, you can be locked up for three months. So this is a really harsh penalty on anyone who's in, in a position saying, well, I, I want to teach, but you'll get locked up for three years. So, after we've had the James II experience, uh, and everyone's uh, very keen that Catholics aren't allowed anywhere near uh, universities, um, and the test acts are in place, uh, there's a slight um, uh, variation on that on William and Mary, uh, with the Act of Toleration, which allows dissenters to worship, and they ease off on um, dissenters, i.e. You know, Baptists and Methodists, are being allowed to teach people at all, and they set, are allowed effectively to set up what become known in retrospect as dissenting academies. So these are one-man bands to start with. Uh, you get a master who will then teach the students. Slowly over time, some of them survive. So they, they someone else takes it over, and they get kind of corporate status and some of them get to be really good so some of them are probably offering a better education that you could get in oxford or cambridge because they're up to date they believe in teaching science they're less keen on aristotle um, than the oxford uh, curriculum so they start to, to really get going now there's a great project at queen mary college uh, looking at dissenting academies and they reckon there's about 220 of these colleges between the um, 17th and 19th century. So there's lots of them, and they educate. They've tracked something 11,000 students. So these are getting, in total, probably as big as Oxford and Cambridge are themselves. So, so some of them are really important. But the, the fact that they build this demand sets the tone for the beginning of the 19th century and effectively the sense that why are we excluding dissenters, so good Protestants, why are we excluding these people from the universities? And it sets the, the, the kind of, um, the background for what will become uh, the University of London and University College Cambridge uh, um, and King's College. So you, you get a beginning point, you get a kind of sense of um, we're going to take these things forward. But people, you know, big name people like Joseph Priestley, they come through the dissenting academies. They're, this is the best place in England to get a top class education. If you want a top class education otherwise, certainly by the 18th century, you've either got to go to Belgium or you've got to go to Scotland. Because what happens at Oxford and Cambridge is effectively you're joining a hunting club um, with a lot of booze attached because there isn't much education going on. And, and generally there's a sense from scholars that everything is kind of a bit fallen apart by then. But they obviously they come right in the end to become the beacons of excellence. But I do enjoy when people talk about um, 800 years of excellence which appears in some of the mottos. There's a kind of, except for the 18th century, when we didn't do anything. Okay, so we got the interesting comments from Michelle Donlan, University's Minister, uh, about decolonising the curriculum last week. It sparked something of a, uh, of, a, of a national debate about this very issue. Debbie, what on earth is going on? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, the 
it's a kind of classic case of uh, we can all have a lot of fun kind of um, taking apart taking apart what Michelle Donlan said. For the purposes of this podcast, I thought I'd better go back to what, what she actually said. Um, and what she said, she was this was in a podcast, a tele- Telegraph Politics podcast, um, talking about freedom of speech and history. And she said, with with university curricula, what's important is that you put things in. So it's actually it's absolutely fine to add new things. Um, and, you know, things that might not, might, might, might have been overlooked in the past, new perspectives and all the rest of it. But what she's got a problem with is taking things out. Um, so removing key text from reading lists. And she said that was a very dangerous and odd road to go down. Um, and her, and, you know, and, she, and she called it sort of censoring history and whitewashing history. Um, I think, you know, and, and, and I suppose what she's talking about is, is, I mean, and, and again, it's one of those things where I, I genuinely, I've, I've not heard of instances where uh, universities have removed texts from reading lists because they are deemed to be offensive by contemporary standards. Um, but, you know, it, it, it may be happening in a few isolated cases and being spun into, into a bigger picture. But I think there's, I think there's two problems. I think, I think, but I think the principle is actually fine. I think it's very hard to disagree with the idea that you shouldn't kind of remove things and say, we're, we're not going to let students read that because it's offensive. That seems, uh, that seems a bit of a stretch. Um, and, and, you know, and Donlan, of course, says, put, you know, by all means, put things back in, widen out the debate. That make, that makes complete sense. Where I think there's a problem is what she said is that if you follow that logic, um, degrees would essentially have to last 20 years because you would, you, you could, you could only ever put, put, you know, put things into the curriculum and you could never take anything out. And actually, I think what it fails to recognise is that, you know, the construction of a curriculum is essentially a curatorial exercise. You know, you do, you, you have to be selective, you foreground some things, you, you push other things back. And the, those choices relate to, learn, you know, delivering on learning objectives and achieving kind of wider, I guess, um, you know, learning outcomes for students. Um, and the other thing is, is as, as Larissa Kennedy, NUS president, pointed out um, this week, I mean, it's, it's genuine, it's really cheeky misrepresentation of the decolonization movement because the decolonization movement is actually, is very much about putting things in, bringing in voices, perspectives, experiences that have been whitewashed out of history because of course while the curriculum is a curatorial exercise it is not an unbiased one and historically choices that have been made uh, may tend to... Uh, perceive certain voices, working class voices, voices of women, um, you know, gender diverse voices and all the rest of it as just being less important to the, to the, you know, to the sweep of history. And one of the things that, you know, and, and, and voices from the margins of empire, particularly. Um, and so bringing those voices back in, trying to understand what life was like and, and, and how, the, how people lived and, and how they experienced history from those perspectives, you know, is absolutely what Michelle Donlan is talking about, which is enriching the curriculum. So, the, you know, there's a, there's a bit of there's a bit of a circular argument going on here. I think. Hmm. I, I mean, that's, that's admirably balanced, Debbie. Uh, Alex, the I, I have a stab at asking this question of, of virtually every guest, every, every almost every single week. Um, you, you, give give us give us a, have a stab at, at telling us why you think Michelle Donlan cares about the the history curriculum at, at universities. <laughs> it's because she gets to make the kind of broad political point that gets her the support in the particular part of the Conservative Party. Yeah, which is uh, what? Which is what is the what is the politi- what is the political point? Do you think that that it's well, it's, it's it's you know it's just a, just another extension of the same kind of things that that Donald Trump has been going on around. You know the the the, the woke lords. Um, Trying to take that any nature of of, of national pride away from um, that, the, the countries and and individuals within them, and you know sometimes there's a bit of that 
that has a resonance and I, you know this focuses on individual events or individual examples but it's the construction of a narrative around that which is not based on any semblance of, of critical mass of activity that just um i think the last time i was on here um you were you were you were winding me up about it as well um or jonathan simons was but it's 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 just playing to the to the gallery and you know universities can either ignore it and then it'll get into the legislation or we can get cross about it and it'll get into the legislation uh nothing we can do really makes any difference and so you know from from our, from our perspective i think it's it's just a, pe- a case of trying to kind of get on with it um and not get too worked up by michelle playing uh, to the crowd because um does she really think any of this stuff i, I don't know um, <laughs> or is she just being a good fit soldier in the, in the in the culture war yeah we'll just wait for gavin williamson to uh to, to leave dfe and and if that happens and then I, I hope it might calm down a bit but but um yeah we'll see so think, what, what think, i'm getting go, go I, I think i think it would be i mean to, you know talk about a chilling effect i think it would be really chilling if the motivation of academics for you know, selecting certain texts was 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 to come under question. I think you know that 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 feels that feels very much like you know the thought police uh, coming 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 to sort of say, well, why did you why did you um, not not use that biography of Churchill and instead use this one? Um, and the answer might be, well, actually, it's more accessible in the university bookshop. You know, the, the, there may be many many reasons why um, academics choose one thing over another and I think you know the the kind of the thinking around decolonization and diversity and inclusion is absolutely part of that picture but there are lots of other things going on there so it it, you know it it really it's really not for government to be saying uh, trying to kind of see into the minds of of academics and and trying to sort of structure their choice making in that way. No I'd agree with that and I I think you know so 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 that 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 cuts both ways I think as long as it's fine to raise um, the issue of the decolonization of the curriculum uh, from one side just as it's fine for um, you know, commentators and even politicians, um, albeit I would say not in their kind of um, formal um, capacity as ministers, um, to try and uh, and discuss, you know, from from their perspective as well. I think, as you say, as soon as that starts to move into the realms of legislation um, and making people do things, um, that's where it starts to get um, really, really difficult. And um, I would I would do that. For, you know, I would say that applies from both sides. So, you know, the, 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 the problem is it just then becomes one side having a go at the other and everybody in the middle just sort of puts their hands over their heads and hopes it all goes away, which um, I think is probably not the, 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 the way that we should want a political discourse around universities to sort of operate in, in this UK, in, in the country Agreed. at the moment. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes or head to wonky.com to find out more about our range of brilliant subscription services, keeping you and your organisation one step ahead of UK higher education policy every single day. Don't forget you can subscribe to this very podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. So thanks to Alex and Debbie for joining me today and for the production support by Jim Dickinson, Matt Grogan and the rest of the team Wonky. The Wonky Show is executive produced by me, Mark Leach. And until next week, stay safe, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.